0: Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And why is encouragement so important? Important according to the Bible. Why is it so important? It says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's from Hebrews 3. First Thess 5 says, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So I thought, let's talk about Encouragement today with Pastor John Afonce. She is the worship and community life pastor at Salem Covenant Church in the New Brighton area. It's in New Brighton, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And it's uh, Jonna, but it's, so it's like Donna with a J.
1: That's right. <laughs>
0: I, I, I learned that from you yeah. just about five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. That's how you describe it. Donna with a J. So that works for me too.
1: Perfect.
0: <laughs> so, Jonna, let's talk about encouragement because I think we all could use some.
1: Yeah, I think that encouragement is a really critical part to what I call sustaining faith. That if you're going to... Um, do that faith journey for the long haul. And especially when you're facing really intensely difficult times or um, pressures from uh, a culture or a world system that lives very differently than you, you desperately need encouragement. Um, Sustainability is a big buzzword out there right now, but what it really means is that our resources match the demands. And so as the demands on our faith increase, the more resources we need and encouragement is one of those powerful ways that God resources us. I would kind of describe the environment that we're in right now as particularly spiritually uh, demanding. Um, I think that the fracturing in our faith. Uh, just groups that used to be aligned and together are sort of breaking apart. Um, our culture seems to be growing in its hostility to people of faith. It's sort of a no big narratives are permitted uh, kind of world. Churches and clergy are struggling with rebounding from the pandemic. And it's kind of a bad news culture. It's just, it's like bad news is what makes it on Twitter. It's what gets going out on Facebook. It's what makes it in the world. And um, good news people can feel kind of silly and naive. And so I think it's really important that we focus in, and I'm excited about this chance with you, Bill, to just talk a little bit about how do we encourage one another? How do we move toward that sustainable faith that will see us through whatever this fall is going to bring us?
0: It says that our in Scripture, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, <laughs> but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I think that makes encouragement all the more important.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, especially when we're sort of under fire from that other realm, um, to to be firing one another up in this world uh, becomes really critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that.
0: The encouragement of people is makes all the difference.
1: Yeah, for it, so so many. So true.
0: Yeah, I mean, I get an encouraging note from a listener, and it makes my week. Oh, I Sometimes know. my month.
1: Oh, as a pastor, you know, of when course. someone takes the time to send me an email or write me a little note and slip it in my mailbox at church.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or yeah a check it, for fifty thousand or something. Yeah, anything. Yeah. <laughs> Anything like that is just so encouraging, Uh, isn't it? Yeah, it
1: really is. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I I thought we could start with, I do want to talk about sources of encouragement for us as kind of a way of thinking about how do I make sure I'm getting refueled? How do I make sure I'm um, in the position to endure? But I also wanted to talk a little bit about... um, clearing some spiritual clogs clogs yes okay. <laughs> so um i want to i want you to think about um the fact that god promises us that there is this constant flow of grace of love of power and mercy it is flowing to us constantly And we are meant to have this eternal resource in the Holy Spirit within us connected to the Godhead that we can be empowered at any given moment. But sometimes that connection between us and God can get clogged Mm. and that grace flow, that power flow, that connection to God can become clogged up. I've been thinking about this because I'm actually just back from a camp I was at. You're very
0: tan or something or something. (laughs) I was was very suspicious of you when you walked in. Uh, She's not in some office. She's been outside. Uh,
1: Yes. So I I got to spend a week at a Johnny and Friends camp um, out in um, western Minnesota. And... um, being uh, if you don't know anything about Johnny and Friends, it's an organization that really is there to help encourage and strengthen families that have children with disabilities. And so these families face some of the most stressful and difficulty um, difficult tasks and ministry I've ever seen. And uh, just being with those families, taught me some things about how they get through their days, how they're formed spiritually um, in this this constant connection to God as they're caring for their kid. And one of the chief things I heard a lot of those families talking about was they know they're in trouble when there is a lack of trust in God. That as soon as they stop feeling like God is good, Or they stop feeling like God is powerful, or they stop feeling like God is wise. Mm. Those three things, good, powerful, and wise, they're in trouble. um, That somehow just jams up their ability to receive from God. And so I guess I want to just put that out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I've been reflecting as I'm walking into the fall, you know what's my hot button there? Do I want do I believe that God is really good and I can trust him that I'm going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living like we hear in Psalm 27 or I'm struggling or am I struggling with God not being really powerful. Like mm. the world is just a wreck and God doesn't know what to do with it.
0: I don't think you're thinking about that at all.
1: <laughs> I don't think that's John Afonso's struggle whatsoever. Right. But I can understand that if I had a kid with severe disabilities, yeah. you could feel pretty bogged down. Yeah. Or maybe you're at, at a workplace that's extremely hostile to your faith or you're facing struggles in your family. You could start to wonder, does God have power here? And um, I just want to remind you that everything is under the power and command of God. Or maybe you're thinking God is not wise, which means the plan God has for my life right now is just a bad plan, right? It's not going to work. Whatever God's doing here looks like a mess to me. And um, I really want to I want to encourage you to, 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So I, I would just invite you even as we start this conversation, if you're listening out there, I've been thinking about you and praying for you, do one of those ping in your heart. Do one of those make you think, oh, I'm kind of questioning that. And what I want to encourage you to do is just to repent And affirm that you do believe that God is good and powerful and wise. And for me, as I'm walking into this uncertain, um, ministry time this fall, and I'm trying to make plans and trying to work with uh, my ministry teams, it's actually that God is not wise. Like, I keep thinking, oh my goodness, God, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, now we've got this to deal with. Now we've got that. Isn't COVID ever going to end? And, um, and for me, it's been to repeatedly come down and say, God, I, I know you are wise and um, my heart, I, it breaks my heart that I would question that. Forgive me for that lack of trust in your wisdom. And I, I honestly saw these families for a week doing this really powerful. Like they knew how to repent. They knew how to nail it. They could see when they were off track. They knew how to repent quickly and to just restore that connection. So they were just powerful models to me of this unclogging that yeah. line between us and God.
0: Because if anyone is going to feel overwhelmed by the real pain in their lives, I would imagine it would be these families. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a tremendous challenge.
1: It is a completely life altering, yes. completely yeah. all consuming um, ministry yeah. call. You know? And
0: without that encouragement, you can feel unloved, you can right. feel like you think, is God concerned with my welfare?
1: Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Legit and, questions. Right. And he is,
0: but yeah. you can still question but it. But
1: you can sure question yeah. it or feel like, is this child a blessing, really? Mm -hmm. Or is this a curse from God? Mm, And you can just see how that would shift your ministry to your child, that uh, the families that can accept that this child is a gift from God and that my ministering to them is shaping my life. It's making me into the kind of person that God wants me to be. Man, they are awesome. It's like walking among saints. Mm -hmm. It was really wondrous to see.
0: Yeah. I love that. Yeah. We're going to take a little break. Jonna Fons is my guest. She is uh, from Salem Covenant Church right here in the Twin Cities. She's the worship and community life pastor. You once in a while hear her with Rick Matson, but Rick is out somewhere today, and that's always a delight just to get Jonna in the studio. Um, I'll take you either way, with Rick or without Rick. <laughs> Thank uh, you we'll bet. take a short break and be right back. We continue our discussion on encouragement i Jonna Fonts. She's worship and community life pastor at Salem Covenant Church in the Twin Cities. We're talking about encouragement today. And if we time this just right, Jonna, at the end of this time, we will pray a blessing for those who are listening.
1: Yeah, that would be great. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, so we talked a little bit already about what could clog up some of that encouragement that um, God is sending us, that source of power and strength and wisdom to live. Um, I kind of like to pivot, if it's all right with you, Bill, and just talk a little bit about some sources for us, places where we can go to really gain um, strength and encouragement. Um one of the first ones is so obvious I almost feel like well, duh, duh duh you know it's it is scripture it's um that scripture itself the word of god creates this space to meet with god it's it's a, um, it is a powerful, and I would even use the word mystical place because it is God's word given to us that creates a kind of spiritual sanctuary where we can get in touch with God, where he is waiting to speak to us. Um, Psalm 19:7 through8 says, "The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I mean, those are just gorgeous pictures of encouragement. A restored soul, a wise person, a rejoicing heart and eyes that can see. And so I do want to just encourage you, if this fall is feeling challenged, if you are in the midst of a season where you are feeling like, the demands on your faith life are pretty intense right now. I want to encourage you to move more deeply into God's word. I would encourage you to get into a Bible study at your church, or um, follow some of the great stuff that Faith Radio presents. I often listen to it in my car,
0: I like every day. Uh,
1: yeah, right. Yeah, right, this time, anyway. right, right. Especially because yeah, I adore time. Bill. Right. Yeah. Um, one series I would recommend if you're looking for a Bible study is NT Right for everyone, and he just does these really great studies of books and. Um, It's just a work through it, like a workbook, but I would just say, make sure that as you walk into this fall, you are really engaging um, with Scripture. I think that Scripture is nourishment. It is fueling. Think of the one thing today that you thought, if I can't get that, I'm not going to make it through the day. Maybe it's that cup of coffee, it's a Diet Coke for me, it's whatever. That's what Scripture is. Scripture is that core thing that is going to see you through those difficult days.
0: Mhm. And talk about the need that we have to be face to face and in community. Yeah. Cuz that's a big a big issue. And yeah, a big it concern is. is we're still in this little <laughs> bit of a tentative meet phase and a little bit of a tentative, are we gathering? How many people were we putting under one roof?
1: Yeah, that's great, Bill. I really think that gathering with one another, this physical presence of other people is really critical. There's a reason why the Bible commands us to not give up meeting with other Christians. Um, I say, remember, you are not the body of Christ, Only we are the body of Christ. You have to join with others. And so I would encourage you, even if your church is primarily online right now, you need a group of believers to gather with. Uh, that may be engaging in small groups uh, that may that may be going for walks with someone and praying, um, you know meeting in a coffee shop, whatever it takes. Just know that there is so much that cannot be done if you are not gathering with others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, our church is open and we have kind of seating that's like, you, it's kind of tight. And for people who are real comfortable, we encourage people to wear masks if you feel comfortable with that. We also have seating that's kind of spaced out. I think a lot of churches are trying to accommodate. Call your church, find out what they're doing, and, and as much as you can, engage with others. I think the scripture that really came to mind for me as I was thinking about this resource is James 5.16. And this is actually about confession. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, what's amazing is the confessing of sin to one another is probably one of the hardest things that you do in community. It's the most vulnerable thing that you do. And so here, confessing your sin leads to healing and righteous people's prayers are answered, right? It's powerful and it's effective. Well, this goes far beyond just confessing sins. This is praying with one another, sharing with one another. I know for me, I'm a huge extrovert. So Part of the power of this is so profound in my life. But I know that when I'm praying alone, I can kind of spiral. I can get pretty frenetic and pleading or get super whiny um, in my prayers. But when I'm with other people praying, I hear their words. I can pray. I can join with them. I can pray with them. I can invite them to pray. And it just, it lifts me out of sometimes those inner spirals I can get in So I do want to encourage you, as challenging as COVID has been, and maybe even as much fear as you're facing, you cannot, you cannot continue to not meet with believers. Mm -hmm. You must find ways.
0: So how good are we at confessing sins to each other? Should I confess my sins right now?
1: (laughs) Maybe not on the radio bell, but Why if you get not? a few minutes afterwards, mm. <laughs> I think that confessing sin I mean, to I one can. another. I <laughs> can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. Great. Yeah. I'll be here for you, brother. Oh. Um, I think confessing sins to one another is really important. And unfortunately, in the Protestant faith, it's one of the things that we've um, missed out on we um, We don't have formal spaces of confession, although I'm always encouraged when I hear about accountability groups because I think accountability uh, accountability groups are usually places where confession is happening, mm-hmm. prayer for one another, and forgiveness is found. But again, scripture is super clear there's amazing power in these face to face relationships. Mm-hmm.
0: Should we uh, pray this blessing you talked about a little bit earlier during the break?
1: Oh, I would love to do that. Um, I do just want to tell one quick story before I do this. I just want um, this, this subject of encouragement has been really important to me, um, especially this summer. I, I've just reached some points of really feeling discouraged in my ministry and in my, just felt like everything was going wrong and everything I was good at didn't matter. And everything I wasn't good at is what I needed to do. And, and in the midst of it, I was asking God just a lot of questions and doing some of that like desperation prayers. And there came this little voice in the back of my head that said, What if everything is going to be all right? It was just this nudge and invitation from God to be open to this being his story even when times are hard. And it, that, that word was really confirmed to me through a book I was reading devotionally. And the quote that came from that book, I actually have it now on a poster on my wall that says, everything is going to be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. Mm-hmm. And I think that this, this understanding, this remembering that this is God's story And if revelation teaches us anything, it's that Christ is victorious and he's victorious in your life too. be encouraged today. Let me pray, please. Lord Jesus, you are so full of goodness, power and wisdom. I ask you to be with every person who can hear my voice. You know the loads that they are bearing. You know how heavy the cross they are carrying can be. I pray that you come with your gentle, humble heart and help bear the weight of their lives. Give them the energy they need to finish this day well. Give them the sense of your presence Give them the resources that they most need to step more deeply into trust with you. I especially pray that scripture would be alive for them, that they would have people to commune with and pray with, and that they would know that they're going to be all right in the end because our end is in you. I pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
0: Thank, thank you, Jonna. I appreciate the topic of encouragement today because it's Monday, and we could all use encouragement because we've got a long week ahead of us, right?
1: Amen. And we Amen. all we
0: all make um, we all gain so much from encouragement. And the topic I'm going to cover in the next half hour is going to be a toughie um, because I'm going to have Rita Schulte on, and she's uh, um, talking about suicide. She's experienced uh-huh. suicide loss firsthand, and she wants to help others. Who are um, survivors as well. Wow, God bless you both. Yeah, I appreciate the encouragement. And we will uh, take a little break when we come back. My guest is Rita Schulte. Her book is Surviving Suicide Loss Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. We'll take a short break and be right back.
2: Get it started afternoon
0: thank you for joining me today spending time with me you know the pain of suicide is is literally indescribable it it's it just seems beyond survival yet if you have faith and perseverance you can find a way through my guest has done that very thing. Rita Schulte has written a book called Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. Rita, welcome.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Bill.
0: Yeah, my my deep sympathy for what you went through.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Um, it's been
3: a long journey back.
0: Yeah. Was it in 2013? Yes, it was. Yeah.
3: In November.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And the loss was your husband. Yes. Yeah. So, so sorry. Um, I know you want to help others, and I appreciate uh, your willingness and desire. So let's talk about uh, this very, very difficult subject. Um, why, why shouldn't we ever say committed suicide?
3: Well, the term may seem innocuous, but actually it's laden with blame and stigma So much so that reporting guidelines now for mental health and media organizations are advising against using it. The term committed suicide is damaging because for many people it evokes associations that this person committed a crime or committed a sin and that makes us think about something morally reprehensible or illegal. For me, the big thing as a therapist is ignores the fact that suicide is often the consequence of an unaddressed you know, mental health disorder, like depression or anxiety or bipolarity. And so it should be regarded in the same way as any physical health condition. You don't say somebody committed a heart attack or committed cancer. You know, you might hear someone say they died from a heart attack. And dying by suicide is the same. When we attach the word committed, it just discriminates against those who lost their battle against a disease. And so we're trying to eliminate these negative
0: stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Whenever we hear about it, it always is so hard to process. And maybe Rita, you can talk about some of the elements in understanding someone who might be considering or close to it, or how do we do the, an assessment?
3: Yeah. So I'm looking for what we call primary and secondary drivers. This Theory. This model was developed by a leading suicidologist, Dr. David Jobes, in conjunction with a couple other brilliant minds in the therapeutic world, Aaron Beck, cognitive therapy, and Marshall Linehan, dialectical behavioral therapy, and Thomas Joyner. So the idea here is that the person is being driven to consider suicide as a viable option because of things like an inability to problem-solve, intense emotional dysregulation so this isn't just you know i'm having a meltdown today this is a person who can't uh, grab hold of any kind of emotional regulation for for a long period of time there's also a lack of reasons for living and so huge buzzwords for me are loneliness disconnection depression isolation if you think of what we've been going through with the pandemic the last year and a half Mm -hmm. obviously we've been experiencing a lot of that it's all over the media and we've seen suicide rates soar, and then there's reasons for dying. And so this is like perceived sense of burdensomeness, a thwarted sense of belonging, loneliness, disconnection, uh, you know, things like that. Like the secondary drivers would include financial distress. I mean, think about the pandemic again, people are losing their businesses, their livelihoods, a rupture in attachment bonds. So an attachment bond is the closest kind of relationship something between a, a child and, a, and parents or spouses. And so, again, you know, you look at the pandemic and you see elevations in domestic violence, uh, people being sequestered in their homes you know,
2: for a year together. Yeah.
3: It's just causing all kinds of uh, depression and loneliness. and All of those things we're seeing, uh, a huge uh, rise in that. And then it could be an illness, like a terminal illness or a uh, profound loss of some kind, Mm -hmm. even if it's just the death of someone, a husband, or something like that, and then a lack of belonging. And so this whole idea of a perceived sense of burdensomeness and a thwarted sense of belonging, if you see a lot of these risk factors present in someone that you love, you want to get them help. Things like talking about suicide, a plan, uh, behavior like insomnia, chronic insomnia, agitation, marked social withdrawal. Again, the immense distress and hopelessness, and especially if that person has access to lethal means. For my husband—a big, huge one—was paranoia, and so that could become uh, a real overriding symptom. My husband became increasingly paranoid over a very short period of time. We're talking a few months. Wow. Yeah. So he wasn't a person who was, you know, historically depressed. I mean, he was never depressed, right? He was, you know, stellar in the community. He was a dentist a pilot. He just began this journey rather quickly, and it ended, obviously, very badly. Mm
0: -hmm. Rita Schulte is my guest. Her her book is Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. In your book, Rita, you say, in the Psalms, we see plenty of people being unfairly accused, misunderstood, angry, and betrayed— we can resonate with when David says he was betrayed by his close companion in Psalm 55. In short, we see ourselves in these verses, and we tap into our own sad tale as we meditate on them. These psalms weren't written by people who had it all together. To put it in today's vernacular, they were a hot mess. Right. So
3: There's many trauma survivors in the Bible, right? And so oh, we yes. want to look at that and learn from that.
0: Yeah, I mean, virtually every page is a suffering person writing to other suffering people.
3: Exactly. hmm And I think that can be, for us, you know, a conduit of hope and healing, that these trauma survivors in the Bible, and they made it through, and they were ordinary people. They weren't Superman, you mm-hmm. know, they weren't Jesus.
0: <laughs> right. Rita, what are um, some mis- common misconceptions about s- suicide?
3: I think that it's sin. I mean, the church certainly hasn't handled this topic very well. Uh, reaching all the way back to the days of Augustine, uh, suicide was looked at as a moral weakness, certainly during the First World War. If you had a uh, shell shock, right, post-traumatic stress, you were thought to be a coward or weak. And so cowardice is another misconception. I mean, when you think about it and look at some of these models that I've studied over the years, We have an inherent will to live, Bill. I mean, we are creatures who want to fight to live Mm -hmm. for the most part. And so, cowardice doesn't go along with that. I mean, I would look at that as it takes a lot of courage to take your own life. It's not cowardice. The two aren't mutually exclusive, right? You can't, most people that are able to uh, enact suicide have this sense of fearlessness. Doesn't mean they aren't subject to fear. But a lot of this is genetic. But like my husband was a fearless kind of guy. He was living life on the edge, a big risk taker. This is a huge component according to research. doesn't mean, again, that these folks are not subject to fear, and that fear can sometimes save their life, right? All of a sudden, your uh, prefrontal cortex, your rational brain kicks in, and, you know, you say, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm not going to go through with this. But that's a big piece of it. And so, yeah. Uh, a lot of people that, um, you know, uh, think about suicide, um, you know, they they just have lies that they're believing about themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mental illness, the church especially has said mental illness can be prayed away, and that depression is all in your mind, or that people who take their lives are eternally lost. Mm-hmm. And that only serves to demoralize and shame people who are hurting and suffering with the mental illness anyway. I mean, and people said that to plenty of my friends, who and had a colleague that I spoke with, and she said somebody said that to her about her husband. I mean, that's not helpful for a suicide loss survivor to hear that your loved one is in hell.
0: Wow, yeah. So, Rita, when you are going through this experience, did you feel that God was um, punishing or challenging you f- for something related to uh, the loss of Mike?
3: I wasn't angry at God. I, I wrote, my first book was shattered, right? And I wrote the book, and the book was released at the beginning of September, and Mike took his life at the beginning of November. And a lot of people said, do you think God had you write that book? Because it was all on loss and suffering. You know, trying to answer the very question, how do some people make it back from catastrophic loss with their faith still intact, and others lose the battle for their hearts altogether with a lesser trial? So that was kind of my quest. And so there I was facing that. Am I going to lose the battle for my faith? Am I going to turn away from God because this happened? And I can remember one time after finding Mike, my son and I were frantically searching for him. He just didn't show up to his dental practice one day. And we found him in the airplane hangar. And he'd been sitting in there for hours in his car, locked in his car. And he was just not there. He was totally dissociative. And... I was obviously terrified that he had already taken his life, you know, when we we opened the door to the hangar. But I remember driving down the parkway the day later, and I thought – I was just praising God that he, you know, hadn't gone through with it. And the thought came into my mind, Lord, would I, like, turn from you? Would I hate you for the rest of my life if you allowed him to really die? And I didn't think too much about it, but obviously that's what ended up happening – and I think I was able to see that this was Mike's choice and that he, was, he wasn't he was well. And I I never believed that a loving God would condemn a person who wasn't in the right mind to hell. So that wasn't a huge piece for me to try to sort out. So I think later, after a lot of other catastrophic things started happening to me, that's when I got angry at God. I was like, okay, Lord, are you kidding me right now? Like, is enough? And when is enough enough? But I was able to stay the course. And God was amazing in my life with some of the things that he did through that first year, year and a half. I got some incredible visions to replace the horror of what I walked into that day. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And that was profoundly healing. And so I think a lot of people, when this kind of tragedy happens, really have their concept of God sorely tested. And they have to kind of work their their way to new, sustainable frameworks of meaning. And that really includes their faith. That's going to be a huge piece if they're people of faith. And so where I want to go with that is, how do they see their self, their faith, and God in the light of what has happened to them if they can assimilate that into their framework of meaning in their face right then that's called assimilation but if they can't do that if they have to change their worldview then that's called accommodation so they're going to now have to change their worldview and the things they believe so for example for me I could say you know I don't believe that God is good or that God is loving anymore because this horrible thing happened so now I'm really, the only thing I can do is change my worldview
0: to try to fit this tragedy into that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Rita, let me take a short break. When I come back, I want to ask you about uh, survivors of suicide loss and and how they deal with things like shame or guilt. You know, had I just gotten there an hour earlier, uh, maybe right. this wouldn't have happened, and people can start replaying these things in their head and torment them forever. So let me uh, take a break when we come back. We'll continue our discussion with Rita Schulte. Her book is Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. We'll be right back. You you not know I'm not trying to be first in my class because I've never been first in my class but September is Suicide Prevention Month and I wanted to have a couple of guests talk about it and it's still August so here Rita Schulte is my guest she's written a book called Surviving Suicide Loss Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. It's a very difficult topic but uh, Rita you're handling it beautifully of course and I want to talk about the survivors of of the loss um, and how they deal with Sometimes their their guilt and their shame that I just gotten there an hour earlier, th- things wouldn't have happened the way they did. If you could talk about that,
3: absolutely, Bill. I was drowning in that. Okay. And so my story is: we have a second home in Florida. We were there for the weekend. Mike flew back on Monday. Was supposed to fly to a treatment center on Tuesday. I was going to fly back on Tuesday and join him at the treatment center, you know, like, hey, is this going to be a good fit for you? Because we tried several things, and he just didn't feel like they were the right thing. hmm So he flew back, and, of course, I came home Tuesday afternoon and walked in to the horror of of that. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I will carry that until the day I die. I should have come back with him on the plane that day. Mm-hmm. But here's how I came to terms with it, and it was just a miracle of God. This was a huge shift for me. EMDR is a very robust and empirically validated treatment modality for trauma. It's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. So I did a lot of that. I was in a session with my counselor. We were talking about the guilt, and I'm plugged up to this machine, in my ears, and then you have these things you hold in your hands, and it's a bilateral brain stimulation. And all of a sudden, I get this vision that I'm sitting on the side of our bed, and Mike is standing there with his hands on holding my face and laser like gaze. He looks into my eyes and he says, Rita, it's not your fault. And boom, it was like. <laughs> a dump truckload of bricks had been taken off me. Mm -hmm. And so that was the beginning of a shift for me. And then the other piece that I like to tell my clients is we generally look at things from me-only-me perspectives, especially if we are subjective in our thinking and personalize things. So in other words, if something's wrong, it's about me, like I made the mistake. So I was able to learn to push back on that. Yeah, I didn't do everything right. I mean, I was a counselor, right? I couldn't stop my own husband from taking his life. But in truth, this wasn't my field at all. I was treating eating disorders, anxiety, you know, depressive disorders. I wasn't didn't know anything about this. And so I had to come to a place where I could have some compassion on myself and say, I was dealing with insanity for four months watching mm-hmm. this man go crazy right in front of my eyes up in our five acre field trying to shoot himself in the hangar locked up. Like it was just total chaos. And so I had to push back too on, okay, me only me or me, not only me, meaning what was Mike's responsibility? Okay. Well, Mike's responsibility was to go to treatment, which he wouldn't do until the end, take medication, which he wouldn't do. He was extremely noncompliant. And even when I had him in the ER after finding him in the hangar later that afternoon, he wouldn't say anything about suicidal ideation. He was laughing. It was like he was totally fine. And the the clinical social worker that was working with us, she's like, Mike, you have to be – you can't just disappear, not show up for for work, not let Rita know what's going on, right? So he did have some kind of responsibility, which he didn't follow through with. and so. That really helps me to see that, okay, it's not totally everything on me. Mm -hmm. So what am I looking for when I deal with survivors who are carrying all this guilt? I'm interested in how the guilt or the shame is connected to the trauma. I'm interested in how the shame affects the way the client is living. I was immobilized for the first few months. I could barely get up out of the bed. Mike was my high school sweetheart. We'd been together since I was 16. The only way I even knew I was alive was because they made me get into the shower and I could feel the water pulsating on my skin. And so I'm interested in what shame is doing to the client's life. Mm -hmm. How's the shame affecting clients' connections to other people? Are they isolating? Are they withdrawn? Are they shut down, right? Because those are the times when you need people to walk alongside of you, right, when you're going through this kind of thing. And if they're not getting that support, that's going to hinder their recovery. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious in what story is the client living and what conclusions has the client drawn about self, God, and the world around them? Those are going to be the places that I want to go.
0: Rita, there's uh, so many younger kids now that are are choosing suicide as an exit for their life. I'm trying to be careful how I use these words, but how, how would parents talk to their kids about a suicide loss if— there's a friend or someone in their school commits suicide. How would how should parents talk right. to their kids?
3: Well, even you know, a parents, so it depends on how old a child is, but the key is the parents do talk. We often forget that children are people, too, and they're curious, and they want to know why, just like we do. So silence only fuels dysfunction. And I always steer people away from using the word, well, daddy just fell asleep, or grandma's you know, sleeping, you want, you've got to use the words, mm-hmm. this person died. Your ideas about how to communicate grief and loss will influence your willingness to talk to your children. So I really want to hit what miss is my client bought into about handling loss and grief right out of the chute, because some of us grew up in homes, especially this is very cultural as well. In Asian cultures, you don't talk about that stuff. And especially you don't talk about suicide because that casts shame on a family. And so those are topics that get swept under the rug. They don't talk about. And if you grew up in a family like that, then you're not going to be comfortable talking about any of this. It's like silence is golden. And I think I talked in the book about uh, this guy wrote a book. His name is Christopher Luca. And his father tells him his mother took her life when he's 18 getting ready to get on a train to go to college. And it so impacted him that he spent the next 20 or 30 years trying to process it.
2: Hmm.
3: And he wrote a great book, but weren't talked about. And that happened when I was in my first suicide loss educational group. lady who was leading the group was 50 years old before her mother told her that her dad had actually taken his life. She had no idea. And, you know, children, children are going to be fearful that the parent left behind might die or leave them right? They can be anxious, clingy, have angry outbursts, because they aren't, if they're younger kids, I mean, we can't process um, abstract thinking until we're, you know, 16, 18 years old. And so if something's going on, the kid's going to think, well, it's my fault. So we just have to reassure them that we're taking care of ourselves as parents, and we're going to be able to be there to take care of them.
0: Mm -hmm. Rita, this is kind of a broad question. We just have a couple minutes left. But I know you've interacted with a lot of people uh, who have endured the tragedy of suicide. What, what happens to people's concept of God during this, this time?
3: Well, I think it can be sorely challenged. Yeah. I mean, these adversities, these traumatic moments are deciding pivotal moments in our life and in our faith walk. We can't sit on the sidelines with this because every single thing that we believe is going to come back to, is God good? Can I trust him? And so we've got to decide about the heart of God. And it's a slow process. I'm not saying, oh, okay, well, some people, maybe it is. Some people, you know, have the palm line there and they're not going to move. But for other people, they're going to struggle. Why would God allow this? How could a good God take my husband? Right? I mean, so many times during those former, Bill, I came home or I was there to forward this. And, the one time I wasn't, and so yeah God well i don't get it why why was I there so many times, and then this time i wasn't i don't get that so it's it's a it's a slow toe in toe out process for people, and they've got to make a decision, even though this horrible thing happened, can I still trust God?
0: Mhm, you no, know, I read when I think about people listening today, I would assume. The majority have had some connection to somebody who has taken their life,
3: well, yes, actually, in our family, Mike's sister's husband took his life right after my son was born, mm-hmm. no more than a mile from our home, where I live now, wow, in a park, so that was the first suicide in our family. And then here I am 30 years later and my husband does it. Mm -hmm. So it's way more prevalent than you would think. And so that's why it's important to have these conversations and to use the right language and to be engaged with people because most people don't know what to do with suicide loss survivors. It's very uncomfortable. It's, they don't know what to say. All, lots of times they'll say nothing because they don't know what to say. Yeah. So you don't. We don't need to be fixed. We just need to be loved, and cared for, and that can be just a, a touch, right? Just a person's attuned and compassionate presence. Mm-hmm. You know, we always want to throw out a Bible verse or whatever. Sometimes that's not
0: even appropriate at the time. Right. You just need to be cared for. Absolutely. yeah, Rita, this is such a hard topic. Thank you for dealing with it so beautifully and um, being such a lovely guest. I've appreciated talking to you and meeting you.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Bill. God bless you for the work you're
0: doing. God bless you as well. Rita Schulte's been my guest. Her book is called Surviving Suicide Loss, Making Your Way Beyond the Ruins. That's all the time we have for today's show. Thanks to Patrick and Linda Kelsey and the Monday Afternoon Mix and John Afonso. What a great show. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow